This is Guns and Butter. part of that is from the bottom up rather than the top down and I would argue that the global cities movement represents just that an end run around national sovereignty and an end run around the nation state itself from the bottom up from the city level rather than from the top down which is more or less the United Nations level but as I've stated Bonnie the global cities grid or network uses many sustainable development goals and other policies and worldviews of the UN. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Mark Anderson. Today's show, Global Cities, Boom or Bust? Mark Anderson has been an investigative journalist for 35 years. Starting as a small-town reporter in Michigan and Indiana, he worked in local journalism writing for weekly newspapers. By 2006, he was writing on geopolitics nationally for American Free Press, covering the super-secret of Bilderberg meetings, as well as influential private organizations like the Trilateral Commission, the Atlantic Council, the Brookings Institute, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the last of which sponsors the annual Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. He focuses on analyzing the global cities movement while calling attention to its deceptive aspects that could undercut the U.S. Constitution. Mark Anderson, welcome. Great to be here, Bonnie. Mark, what are global cities? I assume most people have not heard of global cities. What is meant by the term? It sounds like a contradiction. After all, cities are local. Uh, Global cities is a name for a proposed system of governance, whereby cities mostly your larger metropolitan areas, Chicago, New York, and so on, would, through their worldview, through a shared worldview, and through shared projects, would network with other cities around the world to engage in what they feel are best practices for self-governance within their cities, but also to tie into the global grid, if you will, and operate under United Nations policies and sustainable development goals. So the cities would be self-governing in a sense like they always are, but they would network together and form a global grid and largely sidestep or at least downplay the role of the nation states they inhabit and network together to adhere to, at least for the most part, sustainable development goals of the UN, and other global practices and policies and projects that they feel are beneficial in terms of a particular worldview. And that is a globalist worldview where the nation state plays less of a role and cities play a greater role in governance. Well, you know, for many decades, cities have had Uh, something called sister cities. I just saw in the news that San Francisco has 17 sister cities. Is this completely different than global cities? It's largely different. Sister cities 
I think most of us understand is largely symbolic and has involved things like student exchanges. And sometimes a mayor from a city in Poland would visit South Bend, Indiana, and then South Bend, Indiana's mayor, you know, South Bend is known for having a big Polish neighborhood, big Polish ethnic group there, would visit Poland. But it's all been pretty much public relations and student exchanges and mayoral exchanges and symbolic things. But global cities has to do with actual governance and actually changing the governance of cities to where it at least challenges and sometimes greatly differs from the nation states that the cities inhabit. Um, there's, there's this tendency to want to do an end run around national government or federal government policies and adopt policies and procedures and get into projects that the nation state may not be interested in at all. And so the cities kind of go it alone and network together around the world to pursue these goals under the rubric of such as the Global Parliament of Mayors and other organizations and groupings that advocate these things. And is there such a thing as a global cities movement? I think there is in the general sense. That is, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs arguably is the most active of the 90-plus think tanks in the U.S., most of which, not all, but most of which operate under what's called the World Affairs Councils of America, or WACA. Now, the Chicago Council, formed in 1922, to the best of my estimation, is not a formal member of WACA. But the 90 or so think tanks, World Affairs Councils, some of them city-based, some of them regionally-based, where there's less population, most of them are members of WACA, and even if they're not, they share the same fundamental worldview. So one thing that many Americans don't really realize, whether they're left, right, or center in their thinking, is the idea of a world society and the um, steps toward that are being exercised by 90 or so think tanks in the U.S. that share that goal. And most of them, in one way or another, believe in the global cities idea. But the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, again, arguably, is the most visible and ardent proponent of global cities. And I've done a lot of coverage of that in my news work, using their own press releases and their own events, such as the annual forum on global cities carried out by the Chicago Council, to show conclusively that that's what they're pursuing and how they're doing it and what their views are in doing so. And what about national sovereignty? Is national sovereignty opposed by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the global cities movement in general? Yes. They don't say it explicitly very often, but it becomes evident as you go through the materials, press releases, events such as the Forum on Global Cities, which is now called the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities, named after the prominent Jewish family in Chicago that owns the Hyatt Hotel chain and boasts one of its own, J.B. Pritzker, as governor of Illinois. So there's a real um, nerve center there in the Windy City 
to push this, lots of money exchanging hands. And this annual forum on global cities, when you listen to the pronouncements of the guest speakers and the programs, um, it's unmistakable that national sovereignty does not rate very highly in the views of at least most of the attendees. And that's especially true of the president of the Chicago Council, Evo Dalder, a former U.S. envoy to NATO. Um, he is unmistakable in his views that national sovereignty at best should take a back seat to the global cities movement. And that's been evidenced quite clearly in the articles that I've been publishing covering this issue since 2016. Now, who or what is funding the Chicago Council on Global Affairs? And at the same time, what exactly does the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, what is their mandate? What are they trying to do? Generally speaking, and I've been covering their events before Global Cities since about 2007, 2008. Generally speaking, it's to get local officials, municipal officials, and the local press in Chicago, the Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun-Times, involved in the Global Cities world government outlook and to get local officials kind of... Um, into the network and get them interested and get their financial and moral support. So, you know, city mayors and city councilmen and newspaper editors can all see the light, you might say, on embracing the Chicago Council's global view of things, um, to see things on a global level, to work toward things on a global level. So it, it invariably involves getting the locals into this um world network, this world grid, and getting them interested in getting their support. One of the things that's always evident is that whenever the Chicago Council has a prominent speaker come to town, and going back before COVID, back to, I believe it was 2016, I covered Anders Fogg Rasmussen, the former head of NATO, who came to Chicago to speak to the council. What interested me more, almost more than what Rasmussen had to say was the fact that no press was there. How does a head of NATO come to town in Chicago and not get any coverage? See, that's really, really strange. Um, if there was some supplemental thing he did outside the council's confines, uh, some other program, some other social event, and maybe that got a little coverage, I'm not aware of it. But that is very common that very prominent speakers um, Certain um, scholars and fellows and professors, um, former and current heads of state, uh, people pretty high up in the food chain will come to speak to the Chicago Council and not get any press in the Sun-Times or the Tribune. And then what you find is, invariably, the Sun-Times and the Tribune are actually involved with the Council and not reporting on the Council. So the the local press there in the Windy City is really, in my opinion, abdicating its function. They're supposed to be quite a bit more impartial, and they should be telling Chicagoans in clear terms what the council is up to and what the speakers have to say and what the goals are. But I would say that other than people directly interested in the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, 
Um, most Chicagoans are blissfully unaware of the Global Cities Movement. At least they're unaware of its details, but most of them, in my estimation, know nothing about it at all. And this is where I really come into crosshairs with this a bit. There are some good ideas put forth by the people that promote Global Cities if you break them down into their constituent parts. I can see where you'd want to improve mass transit and have less emissions. I can see where you might like the idea of um, energy independent buildings, buildings that actually produce their own energy through solar and wind and other means. So there's lots of individual ideas broken down again into their constituent parts, but taken as a whole, you put all those parts back together and you look at the modus operandi, you look at the context of it, then you see that it, it has to do with changing the governance relationships within and among nations. So I might like these individual ideas, but not if you're going to take those ideas, put them in a big package and try and change governance and policies and the way decisions are made without informing the people. See, there's that information gap there. That's why I cover this, Bonnie, is because others are not. Well, you write that, quote, under the global cities rubric, the nation state itself is being constantly marginalized. Is this new power grab by the cities a violation of the U.S. Constitution? Um, yes, I think that fundamentally speaking, I believe it is. And I have a number of articles here that I could cite. And... I'm kind of going through them as we speak, but yeah, yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, at least it's questionable because the, the Constitution forbids the states from entering into compacts or treaties with foreign nations. And this really walks close to the line, Bonnie. And I believe in some instances, perhaps not all, but in some instances, I believe it walks over the line. And it's not getting any play or analysis because, again, the Global Cities proponents, to the extent that there's press coverage at all, it's press that is allied with and already in bed with the Global Cities movement as opposed to being a external, impartial reporting on what's going on. The Financial Times, which comes out of the square mile, the City of London, the Financial Center, that's different from London proper in England. The Financial Times is a partner in many of these programs, global cities related or not, by the Chicago Council and is moderating them and is taking part in them. It's not a impartial news source taking a impartial view and reporting on them. And that's so commonplace now, it's so, it's so commonplace that um, absent any impartial reporting, the idea that this might be abridging constitutional confines is simply not discussed. It doesn't come up. Um, if there was more impartial coverage, I believe that eventually that question would come up. So through my alternative press outlets, I've tried to cover what's going on with the Global Cities Movement and ask that question. Is this abridging the constitutional admonition that states should not enter into foreign compacts. Again, I believe in many instances, 
that it does um, encroach upon that and, and cross that line. So it's an important consideration. Governance has to be always transparent. And if you're going to do something contrary to the Constitution, you're going to run into some pretty thorny legal issues pretty quickly. So it makes sense that they have press that's on their side and are kind of reticent about any objective analysis of what they're doing. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Mark Anderson. Today's show, Global Cities, Boom or Bust. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Yes, it's interesting how mayors have been able to usurp the power of, say, counties and states and the federal government and just start making policies on their own. It doesn't seem as if there's any check on it. That's true. And um, one of the major turning points on this came in February of 2018. So we're at an anniversary now. When Ewald Alder went to Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, it's called the RIAA at Chatham House, kind of in the shadow of Buckingham Palace there in London. I've been there. There's a picture of me on my Facebook page standing right at the front door of Chatham House, just having a little fun there. And Dalder went there back in 2018 this month. Prior to that, the suggestion that global cities should take an active role in challenging national policy in any way, shape, or form, those suggestions had been rather tentative suggestions, ideas, armchair discussions. But as of February 2018, when Dalder went to Chatham House, the question was asked, should cities have their own foreign policy? See, things started becoming more explicit then. And for cities to have, um, you know, diplomatic powers or things like that, or get involved in trade deals, that's a pretty dicey suggestion I mean, I can see where a city mayor might call his congressman in Washington and go, you know, my city could use a little help here or there in a trade deal. But for mayors to take it upon themselves to seek foreign policy powers is pretty unprecedented, at least in the modern era of the last couple centuries or so. And that's when things really took a turn three years ago this month when Dalder went to London. Could you talk about the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities? Now, this Forum on Global Cities, uh, you've written, is the flagship event of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Oh, absolutely. Yes, it is. It is absolutely their, their flagship event. They started it in 2016, at least in the formal sense. There was similar discussions, I'm sure, prior to that. But it started in 2016, and it was held in the auditorium of the Art Institute of Chicago, and I went there and covered it. And I just kept an eye on it as I kept covering the infamous super-secret Bilderberg meetings every year as much as I could, as resources would provide. But I, I came to believe, Bonnie, that the Chicago Council and the Global Cities Movement was in a way more important than Bilderberg or Bilderberg's uh, sibling, the Trilateral Commission, formed by Jimmy Carter, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and David Rockefeller in 1973, because the the Global Cities Movement 
um, had a, uh, a very definite and clear-cut agenda uh, that was easier to, to grab onto and easier to explain than these nebulous Bilderberg meetings. So I began to cover it, and there's all sorts of articles I've written on this. One that I wrote in September of 2017 uh, was called The Disruptive Forces Changing Cities, and it was conducted by the Chicago Council September 15th. And I described it as a textbook case of an elite organization pursuing a tightly planned dictatorial society while sounding like it's seeking a democratic, promising vision of fairness and prosperity for all. And I broke the article down into a lot of pieces based on the speaker, who was Amy Liu of the Brookings Institution, which is another organization heavily involved in these things. And she spoke about a lot of things that, again, many of us would find if broken down in their, into their constituent parts, would find, you know, palatable or even agreeable, um, getting around economic exclusion so more people can prosper, um, fostering innovation and entrepreneurship while deepening regional connections, things like that, and uh, getting people out of poverty and into highly skilled jobs, making it so people are not left behind by globalization so they can learn new skills, things like that. But if you keep listening long enough, eventually you, you find the, the breaking point, you might say. And as Liu went along, one of the problems that I detected was that the would-be global engineers that want to have a global society in the full, in the full sense of the word um, they see globalization as something that people must adapt to rather than it adapting to people. There's a, a brilliant economics thinker named C.H. Douglas out of the British Isles in 1918 uh, who founded the social credit movement, which has nothing to do with Chinese social credit and surveillance, absolutely nothing to do with it. But Douglas said something very brilliant and very fundamental. Systems are made for men not men for systems. And when you listen closely to what the global cities people are pushing, the, the globalization thing is something that's here to stay and people must adapt. In other words, people are to march to the tune of systems rather than forming systems that meet the needs of people. So we have to, you might say, obey the globalization mandates and adapt ourselves to them rather than coming up with systems that are adaptable to people. It's a reversal of how things should be. It's very subtle, but it's a very consistent thing that comes up. And, you know, globalization has been a very brutal thing to some people. Entire industries have been decimated, and, and that was before COVID-19 came along and made it even worse through government edicts related to COVID-19. So it's been a very corrosive influence by and large, globalization has. And so the idea that we've just got to learn to put up with it and adapt ourselves and, you know, march to its tune, I think most people, if they understood the score, would disagree with that and would say, you know, maybe we don't need all this global city stuff. Maybe we simply need national policies that adapt to the people's needs rather than trying to force fit people into a globalization scheme. Former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel has a new book out, The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. 
That's a pretty shocking claim. How valid do you think his claim is? I think it's largely valid, Bonnie. That's another upping of the ante. Earlier in this interview, you might recall, I, I mentioned how back in 2016, when the Global Cities movement really took off in earnest, when the Chicago Council had its uh, forum on Global Cities that year in Chicago at the Art Institute, that things were kind of tentative then. There were suggestions and general ideas about how cities could become more involved in global governance. And of course, a few minutes ago, I mentioned in 2018, when the head of the Chicago Council, Evil Dalder, went to Chatham House in London, and then they're talking about should cities have their own foreign policy. And then the ante has been upped, right? It's becoming more serious, more explicit. So now, this is one year ago this month, another anniversary, February of 2020. Dalder was in London February of 2018. So now, February of 2020, one year ago, um, Rahm Emanuel is on C-SPAN talking with a moderator about that book entitled, as you said it, Bonnie, The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. So they've upped the ante even more and they've become even more explicit. And yeah, I think it's because they see national governments, and they're not totally wrong about this, credit where credit's due. They see national governments as being sometimes quite dysfunctional, and that does happen, let's face it. But that, in my opinion, should require a constitutional correction, not the option of doing what amounts to an end run around national governments that many of these global cities uh, have a very strong tendency to do. And Emmanuel, I mentioned in this article, is not futurizing. Rather, I'm reading from my article, he is stumping to make the case that the nation state currently is an anachronism against which mayors, joined by some state governors, should rebel in order to usurp and devolve national power to the local level. The one world architects themselves, many of whom run major foundations and think tanks, they call this process glocalism. And that's their own word, glocalism. And I recount in this same article, Dalder's trip to London, and how they talked about should cities have their own foreign policy. And Emmanuel signed an executive order when he was still mayor in early 2018, committing largely unwitting Chicagoans to the goals of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, not only as pushback against President Trump for backing out of the climate pact the year before, which was in 2017, but also to accentuate the point that under the global cities rubric, the nation state itself is being constantly marginalized. And this is the article, by the way, where I quote the Constitution. Article 1, Section 10. No state shall enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation, and no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another U.S. state or with a foreign power. See, so even states themselves cannot enter into compacts with one another, let alone with a foreign power. So the Constitution is pretty explicit there, Bonnie. So yes, I think this is pretty serious. When um, Rahm Emanuel wrote this book and, and what that title means, there's still a video about him describing his book available on the C-SPAN archive. And Emanuel became Chicago's first Jewish mayor. And he spoke of a lot of things, his upbringing in Chicago. He is a Chicagoan. It's not like he's 
from the outside. And he has, you know, he has a lot of good ideas and sound observations in many respects. But um, he thinks the country needs national service and things like that. And a lot of ideas that I think are largely discredited or would not really bring about the results that he hopes. And um, ultimately, there's this idea that we have to have this multicultural society that um, you might say doesn't really have a center to it. it in other words, there's, there's not going to be a, a big consensus on what kind of government the United States should have. Uh, so you get this kind of pluralistic thing where the Constitution is just another idea to consider as opposed to the supreme law of the land. So everything just kind of runs up on the rocks from there and everything becomes very relative. And it's hard then to have a shared consensus in the U.S. about what direction our nation should go. And into that vacuum, the world society idea fits quite well. And that appears to have a lot of appeal to people. But um, it would involve some very thorny constitutional questions and changes and again, whatever one might think of the ideas of these globocrats that are pursuing this global cities system, whatever one might think of it, we need more publicity about it. And again, you don't have to agree with me. That's not the point. I'm trying to inform people more than I'm trying to persuade them. And with the lack of news on this movement, that's a real problem. And then we could have an intelligent discussion does Emmanuel know what he's talking about or doesn't he? And do we really want to go down this road or don't we? See, we're not even getting to that point. And that's that's a big loss. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Mark Anderson. Today's show, Global Cities, Boom or Bust. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And what about the recent Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. Now, you covered this Forum on Global Cities, which is part of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. What did the Forum on Global Cities include? Well, it's important to clarify that as of 2020 with the COVID thing, it was the first time the Forum on Global Cities was held virtually using Zoom. And so, speakers and contributors were largely not in the same physical location. It was the first virtual forum, and they announced at that time that instead of having one big confab, one big global cities forum every year like they have been having since 2016, they're going to break it into little pieces and have smaller forums throughout the year. And one of the first, if not the first, smaller forum is coming up March 18th rather than waiting until the summer. And that's going to feature the New Orleans mayor and the keynote speaker, none other than Anthony Fauci, America's doctor under COVID, we're told. So Dr. Fauci is, in my opinion, showing his globalist pedigree a little bit. And this is the first time that he has spoken to the Chicago Council. And it, I believe it's the first time that he's spoken as a main speaker anyway to any one world or globalist group. So Dr. Fauci is in a way coming out of the closet, you might say, in this ideological sense, and he's addressing that March 18th. 
Now, when they met this past year in 2020, um, the main thrust of it was what Galder said via Zoom. He opened the event by stating this, Bonnie, quote, the global pandemic has changed global cities as we know them. The resulting economic, social, and cultural transformation of our cities have been truly unprecedented. The cities are frontline actors responding to a public health emergency. U.S. cities had to get to work and find creative ways to stay connected with each other and with cities around the world. See, so the pandemic, for good or ill, gave cities this opportunity to stay connected with one another within the U.S. and around the world. In other words, the COVID-19 thing has given a whole new life or a big spark, a shot in the arm to this networking that the cities are doing in order to promote United Nations related governance ideas. And COVID simply gave them that shot in the arm to move forward on that. That was a major broad theme. Now, some of the details of the 2020 forum held virtually were one, adapting governance, two, pursuing equity, three, reimagining resilience, things like that. Now, some of this represents what I call the doublespeak of some of these groups. I call it global ease. When you talk about, you know, reimagining resilience, what does that even mean, right? Some of these things I think are deliberately kept kind of murky so they can be worked any way that they want to work them or open to interpretation. Um, adapting governments, various transformations and things like that. And so it kind of creates a, a malleable situation, a, a very flexible thing where, where these policies for global cities can be explored and easily adaptable by keeping the rules of the road very, very flexible is what I'm trying to say. But equity and equality, things like that are often talked about and there's nothing wrong, of course, with equity, and we're all born equal, or at least we ought to be viewed that way, equal before the law. And of course, some are more equal than others, as Orwell said in some of his writings. These are just some of the things that were discussed in Chicago. Also, I mentioned in that same article that smart cities are part of the global cities movement. And now they're talking about, and this is going to come up when Fauci speaks in March, Bonnie, they're talking about vaccine nationalism, which, again, is one of these kind of murky, nebulous-sounding concepts like the ones I listed from the 2020 program. So it's pretty interesting, but it can be difficult to follow sometimes because of the terminology that's used and how that terminology is open to interpretation. Yes, well, I certainly see what you mean by globalese, because you could take any of these murky concepts and interpret them any way you want it. Now, you mentioned smart cities. Does the global cities movement emphasize smart cities? And if so, what would this mean in practice? Well, it would mean a 5G Internet of Things. Of course, there are a lot of concerns among liberals and conservatives about the safety of 5G. Have there been enough environmental impact studies on the general environment, on human health, many say no. But the global cities movement seems to be rushing headlong into 5G, the internet of things, where there's a lot of surveillance equipment, a lot of the means of surveillance is pervasive throughout society. 
where you have smartphones, smart refrigerators, smart meters, um, smart buildings have even been discussed. Buildings that are almost completely self-governing in turning off and on their lights. Uh, buildings that are capable of generating at least some of their own energy uh, with which to operate. From, again, from solar and wind, I mentioned that earlier. And not always a bad idea, right? I mean, you look at that individually, you think, wow, that could be a really cool architectural achievement. And it probably would be. But if you enter a global city slash smart city 50 years from now, you'd be entering a city where your location would always be known and privacy would be a very difficult thing to attain. There could very well be readings on, on your smartphone or embedded in your skin on whether you've been vaccinated or not. And maybe if you haven't, you wouldn't be allowed to, sh to shop or enter certain public venues, kind of like the wrong kind of social credit system in China, where if you don't meet the demands of the ruling class at that time, that you'd be prohibited from buying and selling, or you'd be prohibited from certain modes of transportation, maybe for certain lengths of time, maybe quasi-permanently, based on your rating in society. And many American globalists have spoke of such things favorably. Not always, but in some instances, they've spoke of those things favorably, that um, the Internet of Things should have those capabilities, and maybe people that don't vaccinate should be limited in their travels and in their commercial activities. And so I think 50 years from now, if this system is put in place, you'd be looking at a, a high surveillance grid whenever you enter a major metropolitan area. It could have a lot of nice amenities, a lot of luxuries and things that many people might like. But behind the curtain, there could be a, an underbelly there that many people would find quite, quite unsavory, quite questionable. Would you say then that the concept of smart cities is all about control? I don't think it can avoid it. Let's put it that way. I don't know that it's all about it, but when you add everything together, the Internet of Things, 5G, and if that goes where it seems to be heading and people are denied services or transportation because they're, quote, not vaccinated, that is a major element of control just by itself. And even if that were not present, you would have the Internet of Things and tracking people's movements and what kind of political views will be acceptable. If you look at the deplatforming that goes on by social media companies, Bonnie, demonetizing, deplatforming, taking down YouTube sites, people of certain philosophical views are being fired, like Lou Dobbs being fired from Fox News because he didn't agree with the mechanics of the 2020 election and other unpopular views. Oftentimes those views are on the right of the spectrum, not always, but oftentimes. But when you look at where that's heading as well, it's not hard to imagine where if you're not vaccinated and or if you have the wrong view of things, if you're engaging in wrong think, if you're not uh, an acceptable person, if you're a dissident thinker, then society at large might find you a threat. You might be defined as some sort of domestic threat under the DHS or something like that. So people could be very easily blacklisted in one way or another. And China is leading the way in that, of course. So that system does exist. And it's a question of will America as a nation remain free enough and resilient enough as a nation, as a whole, not broken up into global cities, 
but as a nation, to resist adopting these kinds of invasive technologies. And it just looks to me so far that the Global Cities Movement is heading that direction and is incorporating many of those things. And if it isn't already, it will. I read with interest your article, 2020 Global Cities Forum, COVID, a catalyst to expand local authority and usurp or subvert national powers. How would you characterize the effect that the pandemic has had on the power of cities? Well, it's largely magnified them. I'm glad you asked that, Bonnie. I was going to suggest that. Um, If you look at Mayor de Blasio there in New York City, and if you look at Rahm Emanuel and then um, Lightfoot, I think that's her name, my goodness, she's, she's quite the piece of work there in Chicago. Sorry to say that's a troubling development there. If you look at a lot of these mayors and and the governors, but the mayors, um, you, you're looking at a situation where their ability to enact onerous and often very, very heavy-handed rules and regulations without really much in the way of opposition and without even bothering to explain what it all means, that power has been greatly magnified under the COVID crackdown. And this is going to give the global cities another shot in the arm along the lines of what was um, embodied in the title of Rahm Emanuel's book. And it's going to be, I think, an abuse of power. I think it has been an abuse of power. I know I think it's Staten Island and some of the other boroughs there in New York City have been really, really bristling at the closing down of so many businesses, be they taverns, restaurants, you know, sports bars, whatever they might be, cafes, et cetera, et cetera. And you can only go so long before that business is lost altogether. And the restaurant business is hard enough as it is, even even in great times. So yes, this COVID has presented, I think, a troubling glimpse into where global cities could be headed if mayors take it upon themselves to act like emperors and not like honorable statesmen in any sense of the word, and the kind of abuses that can happen. If it's this bad now, imagine how much worse it could get if there's further COVID crackdowns, if there's these alleged new strains of COVID and the crackdowns that go with that. In other words, we ain't seen nothing yet as bad as it is now. And then the abuses of power by these mayors would be legion. And then if you add the global cities philosophy to that, where they see themselves as part of a world governance network in their collaboration with other cities in the U.S. and abroad, if they get that into their head um, and you put all that together, you're looking at a potential for massive abuse of power and a end run around national powers. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Mark Anderson. Today's show, Global Cities, Boom or bust? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Bonnie, another thing that this connects to, and I think this is a very important point, this is, in my opinion, the taproot of the Global Cities Movement, at least the reason for it. It goes back to what Richard N. Gardner, a former Columbia University professor in New York, wrote in Foreign Affairs, the Journal of the Council on Foreign Relations in April 1974, 
and the name of the article, one of the most explicit to ever appear in that journal, was The Hard Road to World Order. And here's what Gardner wrote. We are witnessing an outbreak of short-sighted nationalism that seems oblivious to the economic, political, and moral implications of interdependence. The House of World Order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Get that. The House of World Order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than the top down. And an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault. End quote. Now, that's a very interesting and, in many people's opinions, controversial quote from Gardner. But the key part of that is from the bottom up rather than the top down. And I would argue that the Global Cities Movement represents just that, an end run around national sovereignty and an end run around the nation state itself from the bottom up, from the city level, rather than from the top down, which is more or less the United Nations level, but as I've stated, Bonnie, the global cities grid or network uses many sustainable development goals and other policies and worldviews of the UN, even though it's doing things from the bottom up, it borrows ideas that are used from the top down. So it's kind of a pincer strategy, you might say. And so that's a very important taproot to this whole thing. With regard to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, who or what is funding the Chicago Council on Global Affairs? I have not delved into their general funding that deeply. They have some pretty highfalutin members there in the Windy City, wealthy donors, uh, people of some repute, you know, in the social register of Chicago. That's, of course, a major part of their annual funding is through those membership dues. But a couple of the articles that I've written, Bonnie, posted on my blog, thetruthhound.com, but other outlets as well. Among those articles, I've written where they got one bequest from the Robert R. McCormick Foundation, and then with that, they named their main meeting room at the Prudential Plaza along Randolph Street, where the Chicago Council's programs are held in person. They named the main meeting room the Robert R. McCormick Hall. And then another major chunk of money came about in recent years from the Crown family. And that, of course, involves still living defense contractor magnate Lester Crown. And that, that's an important bequest there as well. Between those two alone, you're talking multi-millions of dollars. But here's a very important point. The... Robert R. McCormick Foundation is named after the legendary Chicago Tribune publisher who would have disagreed with almost every word that comes out of the Chicago Council. McCormick was an ardent and fervent nationalist and national sovereignty supporter. He didn't believe in fighting foreign wars for arbitrary reasons in all that interventionism. He was ridiculed in his day we hear this even nowadays as an isolationist. Oh, he couldn't be a peace seeker. Oh, no, he's an isolationist. One of the worst of worst things you can be. But to get money from the McCormick legacy and to spend it on the global cities movement and on globalism in general 
goes against the grain of everything that McCormick fought for and wrote about and sent his reporters around the world for during his reign from the 1920s until his passing away, I believe it was in 1955. That is one of the more unsavory and repellent things that I've seen in studying this movement is to take a nationalist legacy like that and use it for the very globalism that he would have so steadfastly opposed. That is just very incongruent, and I, I really find that quite detestable, actually, even though I, I work very hard to cover all of this as impartially as I can. But that is really a, a strike against the movement, in my opinion, because it just dishonors the legacy of that great newspaper publisher, McCormick, and it does it in such a flagrant way. And then the Crown family, the money used there, and I believe that sum was never disclosed from the Crown family, but they're known for, I believe it's the Trident submarine production in Groton, Connecticut at the shipyards there, and other uh, very, very popular and long-used weapon systems are built through General Dynamics that the Crown family put together, and that bequest to the Chicago Council, again, from that family the amount was not disclosed, but it created the Lester Crown um, speaker series on foreign policy. And the very first speaker under the Lester Crown umbrella was none other than the former Secretary of Defense under Trump, James Mad Dog Mattis. And I wrote about that, that Mattis turned his back on President Trump's nationalistic views and wrote a book and went on the globalist circuit, speaking to the Chicago Council in the first Lester Crown speech. And I interpreted that as him selling his soul to globalism and turning his back on the more nationalistic policies of Trump. Whether one agrees with Trump or not is immaterial. The fact of the matter is, is Mattis really turned on Trump and really went on a different trajectory that many people feel would not serve the U.S. well because they felt that Trump's nationalistic outlook and using the military far less in terms of interventionism and pulling back on interventionism and foreign wars was the way to go, and that Mattis is embracing a worldview that could lead to renewed interventionism, more Iraqs, more Afghanistans, things like that. That is the concern that I'm trying to raise here. So while I don't know the a to Z funding on the Chicago Council, the membership dues and the bequests from the McCormick Foundation and from the Crown family are major sources of income for them. I just noticed in today's news, quote, Nevada governor touts proposal to allow tech companies to create local governments. Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak, a Democrat, touted a proposal that would allow tech companies to create local governments. A draft proposal that has not yet been introduced in the Nevada State Legislature would clear the way for, quote, innovation zones, allowing tech companies to form separate governments in the state, according to a draft of the bill obtained by the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Well, that's certainly... Uh, grab my attention uh, because we were going to do this show on global cities. Have you heard anything about tech companies creating their own governments? 
not in the explicit um, sense like that, but I'm not surprised, Bonnie. And that, I think those on the left and right, Democrat, Republican, red and blue, that I think we all could agree and unify behind the idea that that's a highly questionable thing. Already the tech companies who are the enemies of conservative thought, one might say online digitally right now, and they're deplatforming people and taking down their YouTube channels and demonetizing them. If they're the conservatives enemy today, they might be the liberals enemy tomorrow. They're very, very hard to predict. And I think that to give these tech companies who already have way too much power over freedom of speech and freedom of expression, to give them that kind of polity or political entity and have them operate private governments onto themselves, um, not only would that fit in as an adjunct to the Global Cities Movement, but even by itself, I think we could all agree that that's a highly questionable idea at best, and that they've already uh, proven themselves to be very capricious and prone to rule one way or the other and throw their weight around and tell the rest of us what we're going to say and what we can't say, what we can and can't publish, at one moment, they're a public forum. The next moment, they're a publisher. They're like a chameleon, whatever suits them from moment to moment or day to day. And we should not have a world of Twitter cities and Google communities. I, don't, I just don't see how that's tenable or workable. But it does fit into the um, basic goal that I have always cited with these uh, global groupings like the Bilderberg meetings, like Trilateral Commission, like the CFR, the Chicago Council, and the Brookings Institution, the Atlantic Council, all of which I've covered as a reporter, the one thing they all seem to have in common is this idea that you can just increasingly detach from national governments and from the nation state and have these municipalities network together and involve all these private actors like social media companies. And what you end up doing eventually is privatizing government itself rather than just having a privatized water system or a privatized sewer system or a city might sell its municipal electric grid to a private operator, let's say, instead of all that piecemeal privatization, you end up with wholesale privatization where government itself becomes a nearly completely private affair, if not a totally private affair. And what you're indicating now, Bonnie, sounds to me like it's going that extra step toward almost completely private governing structures. And I just don't see that as a welcome trend. Certainly, it would be difficult to pass the smell test. I would think the Nevada legislature would want to take a very hard look at something like that. Because what do you do about law and order? Where, where are the lines drawn? What is the jurisdiction of the state of Nevada? And where does that jurisdiction end? Uh, what is the jurisdiction of the federal government? And where does it end? I mean, all sorts of thorny, practical and constitutional and legal questions. And it just seems to me we'd be all better off if we just don't go there. But it's nice to see that it's getting some publicity. I just wish the Global Cities Movement as a whole would get that same kind of publicity in a sustained way where people have a chance and opportunity to chime in on this and let their views be known. Get some transparency out there rather than all this quasi-open, semi-subterranean promotion that goes on where the, the press, like the Chicago press, is more an ally of the Chicago Council and not an impartial reporter about the Council. So I think that sums it up pretty well. 
Mark Anderson, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Bonnie. I really enjoyed it, and I hope the audience does too. I've been speaking with Mark Anderson. Today's show has been Global Cities, Boom or Bust? Mark Anderson has been an investigative journalist for 35 years. Starting as a small-town reporter in Michigan and Indiana, he worked in local journalism writing for weekly newspapers. By 2006, he was writing on geopolitics nationally for American Free Press, covering the super-secret of Bilderberg meetings, as well as influential private organizations like the Trilateral Commission, the Atlantic Council, the Brookings Institution, and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the last of which sponsors the annual Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. He blogs at thetruthhound.com and posts articles and video reports at worldimpactnews.net. He hosts a radio show, Stop the Presses, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, on republicbroadcasting.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will Divided we will fall, because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher. And be on the lookout for the spirit snipers.